Hi guys and welcome back to the Female Fitness Podcast. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Callum Raystrick. Callum is a coach and an educator in the industry. He coached me through my last prep and I've had mentorship from him in the past as well so I thought it'd be really cool to get him on the podcast and just a little bit of a disclaimer before we start as well neither of us are medical professionals and the information in this podcast is for educational and or entertainment purposes only please make sure you do consult your healthcare professional if you have any health concerns or if you are thinking of implementing anything which we speak about today so Callum would you like to briefly introduce yourself I'm, uh, I'm Cal. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am um, one-sixth of the Muscle Mentors now. So obviously me and Luke founded it back in 2018. Uh, I used to, used to be more kind of gym-based PT, worked at M10 in Nottingham for about three years. Um, that was kind of my main bulk of work as a, as a gym floor coach. And then Ever since there, I've kind of operated operated online. So the last, um, I guess, two and a half, three years now, I've just been um, just building that presence online. We started, obviously, the, the education side of the company with some mentoring and the education portal, which takes up a good amount of time now throughout the week. And then the rest of my time and still the majority of my time is spent uh, coaching clients one to one, but online now. Yeah, cool. So in today's podcast, we are going to discuss how you might go about setting yourself up for a successful contest prep in regards to health and some of the things you might consider uh, making sure are in a really good place before you think about going into prep and dropping the hammer with that. So first and foremost, Cal, what blood tests would it be useful to consider getting done prior to a contest prep for a female and why? So, um, I guess there are two ways of looking at this. In terms of blood analysis, we want to get an appreciation of like a female clients, and, and this would be the same as well with a male client. We want to get an appreciation of their readiness to prep in the first place. And when I say readiness, I literally just mean like their the the status of their health and the inclination their body's going to have to actually respond to what you're throwing at it. Because as we know, realistically, in the most part, for the most part. You know, a healthier body is a more responsive body. So if we can go into that prep phase where we know physiological stress is going to increase drastically, um, we want to have those health metrics in the most optimal, quote unquote, optimal place possible before we enter that phase. So, you know, blood work prior to contest prep and blood work through contest prep, blood work through the off season, we're trying to establish an appreciation of baseline health for future reference. So, you know, we might get a panel the week or a couple of, couple of weeks before you start the prep which would technically be, you know, prior to contest prep, it should realistically be that client in the, the peak state of their health with the lowest amount of stress possible because they've kind of primed into being ready to die in the first place. They've kind of alleviated and washed off the stress from the off season. They're, they're ready to rock. Um, and that'll give us kind of like a baseline appreciation of, you know, where are the starting markers that we're going to have to refer back to when we potentially rerun the blood work in, say, eight to 12 weeks time when they've been dieting for a couple of months and that physiological stress has increased. And the same goes for right at the midpoint of prep. Now, if we want to run blood work again, you know, we, we run blood work at week 10 of prep and then we're going to run blood work at week 20 of prep. What are the differences occurring in those key markers at those given landmarks across the year? Um, and from our perspective as a coach, it's therefore, 
identifying any red flags that are going to bring up within that blood work. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those red flags later on in the podcast, but anything that does need to potentially ring an alarm bell when it comes to their general health or anything that rings an alarm bell when it comes to, you know, that probably isn't in the perfect place for you to actually, you know, be in a, be in a deficit or being in a contest prep or being in a high stress situation in the first place. So is that going to, is that going to deter us from, from allowing that competitor to prep in the first place? Is that going to allow our potential kind of uh, calendar for the year to potentially be delayed until we've, until we've improved the situation of those markers? Um, so we're basically going through just a general snapshot of that individual's health and then kind of relating that back to the proximity of the goal, I guess. Yeah. And are there any, so a lot of people will use companies like Meditrex to get their blood tests done. Are there any sort of like good all round blood tests, which you find are pretty good for getting that initial sort of panel done? So um, you can get this through the GP and some of the, like if you've got oversized, oversized overseas clients in um, like the States, generally speaking, their accessibility to more detailed blood work from like a family doctor would be a little bit better than it is over here. Um, so if you go to your GP for a, for a blood panel, you know, if you had a reason for getting it, they're going to give it to you. Um, but the complication we have there is the fact that a lot of those blood tests and blood results that are, that are going through you kind of using the National Health Service are going to be a little bit less detailed than we potentially want to see because you know they're trying to be financially uh, conservative in terms of how much they're spending per per individual on blood work and blood analysis and how in depth the actual results are. So generally speaking, I would use a company like say Medichex. I probably use Medichex with ninety percent of my clients. Um, and generally speaking, like if you break that down into two brackets. There's like a higher price point, which will give us a little bit more detail and then a lower price point, which will give us a bit, little bit less detail. So the higher, higher price point, if money wasn't an object, I would probably have a female client run um, the ultimate performance blood test from many checks, which is about, I think it's about 190 quid. Uh, and that will literally have everything under the sun that you can think of. Now, if we wanted to go really in depth with those hormone pathways, we'd probably look at something like a Dutch, which is urine analysis, which... If we're looking at the metabolites of those hormones and a more in-depth detailed appreciation of those hormones and pathways, you probably would go for a Dutch, but then you're talking in the range of 350, 400 pound and it does get expensive. So for the most part, general day-to-day prep clients, you just look at blood work. Um, the midpoint or like the lower price point would be something like from Medichex's website, um, Well Woman, uh, well, it used to be called Well Woman Ultra, I think, and now it's just called Advanced Well Woman Check or the... Um, advanced sports hormone blood test i think both of those are about 120 to 140 quid so you've got like a lower price point which will be about 140 and that higher price point which will be the the ultimate performance blood test and realistically even if you went and ran that well woman test for most clients it would give you everything you wanted to know and the general rule of thumb i use with blood work is you know if money's not an object, then I'm going to get the more detailed one. But if we are going to try and be sensible here in terms of expenses, because they're going to have to pay for, you know, if they're prepping, they're going to have to pay for a bikini. They're going to have to pay for the registration for the show. They're going to have to pay for a posing coach. They're going to have to pay for the coach, whatever it might be. We, we need to be realistic in terms of expenses. Um, get the cheaper panel. And then if there is anything that you feel as though is off, and bear in mind that when we get a Medichex blood panel, you can get doctor's notes with the blood panels as well. So they're going to tell you what's going on. And, you know, that's reliable. They are medically professional people. So you, you can't listen to them. I think there's some kind of misconception that 
oh, I'm going to listen to my coach instead of the doctor at Medichex, but they're, they're a doctor for a reason. They're, they're trained in, in reading blood work, so listen to it. Um, and the other thing goes for if there are ranges that are either under or over on that blood panel and you run a Medichex blood test, it's going to come up as, you know, out of range, in range. It's going to come up as, as you know, red on the paper. So you can pretty easily see what markers are out. Now, we can speak about that in a context-dependent situation where potentially we're looking at, say, um, on a given day, checking liver and kidney markers and why they would potentially be out due to training status. But if we're looking at lipids, if we're looking at hormones, for example, you know, we're getting a pretty accurate representation of where they are. And if there are red flags there, then the blood work's gonna ping them up. And obviously, if we're getting a cheaper panel and I get something that I'm not quite happy with, it then might lead me down to further testing. So as a general rule of thumb, if you go for that cheaper option with a little bit less information, it's going to still bring up the bigger picture. And then if there is anything that does cause concern, then you can always get further testing on those specific markers in the future if you want to. Yeah. And say a client did have some blood work done prior to starting a contest prep and some of their um, health markers were out of range. There were some red flags in there. Would you prefer to hold off on prep until these markers were back within a normal range? Uh, I guess like that would be context dependent. So it depends on the magnitude of variance that we're talking about. So like, is it of critical concern or is it an acceptable compromise? So there's an ethical decision as a coach there needing to be made as to you know, if this client is going for a, you know, it depends on the magnitude of the goal as well. If we've got a client that's going for a pro card and they're very close, it's like, right, do we take compromise there or do we delay our, 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 our objective? Or, you know, if it's the first time a client and I see that and there's something not right, then I'm like, right, we've got no rush here, so let's take our time to address it. So there's an ethical decision needs to be made. Do we have time to address the situation before they need to start darting? How much are we willing to compromise? And if there is something off with that blood work, how much is that actually going to compromise the process in itself? So like how much is that going to compromise their ability to respond into the diet, for example? If a female client is, you know, using assistance or using androgens, then, you know, we've got to appreciate the fact that realistically, we're rarely going to see perfect blood work ever in that situation. And that goes for a male as well. So it's kind of taking the results with a pinch of salt and accepting certain levels of compromise, but knowing when to draw the line. Um, so I guess, in an ideal world, we would say, right, I want to see pretty perfect, quote unquote, perfect blood work before we start a prep. But sometimes there is a level of compromise that's taken if they are in close proximity to achieving what they're trying to achieve. So say if you've got a client who's, uh, you know, done one season the last year and they came second in an overall and lost out to a pro card and you go and draw their blood work prior to them starting this prep and you've got a show in, say, four months that you're pretty confident they're going to be able to nail and potentially pick up that card and they come back and there's something off with their blood work so maybe their uh their hdl is lower than we we anticipated their ldl is higher than we anticipated and their triglycerides are higher right in that situation then it's like i can probably manage this just with smart supplementation without with adding in some some organ support being conscious of that within the deficit and then it's basically monitoring that through prep and it's not really going to change your objective. Whereas if you had a client that started prep and they came back and we were in a like severely compromised state of thyroid function, then it's like, right, well, that is going to directly impact my ability to actually diet you in the first place and achieve the objective in prep here, unless we're going to rely on exogenous thyroid. Therefore, potentially it isn't the best time to start the process in the first place. 
and potentially delay this until these things are being addressed. And I think in a, in a context dependent situation, this can happen quite commonly when you get a client who inquires with you and they say in the consult form, it's now January and they say, I want to compete in April. And they've got say 14 weeks until a show and they expect you to take, take the coaching on board immediately and put them in a, in a prep immediately or put them in a deficit immediately or put them in a process immediately. And in that situation, we don't have any time to have any form of appreciation of what's going on internally. And to me, that's a big risk. So, you know, over the years, I've kind of come to the, come to the conclusion that it's very naive from a coaching perspective. And it's also not a very effective way of working from a coaching perspective. If we're taking on clients that we've never worked with before for a period of time, and we're going straight into a prep because those things will happen quite commonly as well. Um, does that make sense in terms of like, yeah, definitely. The, the basics are covered first. Definitely. Um, and I think, like you said, it, it partially comes down to recognizing that to some extent, stepping on stage and obviously goals like achieving your pro card, they're extreme goals and health is not the first priority when you are trying to achieve those goals, but we're trying to do everything we can to minimize those negative health effects where possible and ensure that they can actually get to the end goal, if that makes sense. But I think the, the, the reality is like any competitive sport is, is, is not healthy and bodybuilding is the extreme of extremes. So even if you are someone who's, who's never used assistance in your life and you're a natural competitor, you've got to appreciate the fact that when you're contest lean, you're not in a good place of, of health. You're hormonally bottomed out. You're going to be in a position where you're under an extreme amount of physiological stress. The body's not made realistically to, to sit comfortably at that much of an extreme across from where homeostasis is. It's so far north of homeostasis that it's going to be in a, in a highly stressed situation. So from a coaching perspective, it's like, right, well, ethically, I can only push you so far before I kind of feel that this is, this is not right to do and before you start to crumble, whether that's psychologically or physically. Um, and it's basically just knowing when to draw the line and taking on the client's feedback and knowing when to draw the line. And from a, from a starting point within prep, Sometimes it's not going to be perfect, but we've also got to appreciate the fact that, you know, bodybuilding, we're not always dealing with perfect in the first place for a lot of those situations. So it's like, right, what's the level of compromise that we're willing to accept? And from a coaching standpoint, ethically as a coach, it's like, what can I do within my power to ensure that these things stay as stable as possible through this process in front of us? And that comes down to like, you know, the aggression you've got within the diet, um, potentially, you know, certain health supplementation you're using or stress management, sleep, whatever it might be. You know, there are plenty of things we can focus on, but it's going to come down to that kind of ethical consideration at the end of the day. Yeah. And say there was a, a red flag. So one of the health markers was out of range. It could be, say, a deficiency or um, something like thyroid. And you wanted to try and correct that before starting a prep. How long would you wait until retesting whilst you're working to improve that health marker? Um, so say if it was, uh, say if we said we ran blood work with that client and we noticed that um, TSH, T4 and T3 were, were not where they should be or TSH was low or general thyroid function was compromised and those markers were, were below range. That's probably going to reflect in the level of stress they're under at that given time and where energy balance is or has been for the last potentially several months. So generally speaking, unless there's a, an underlying uh, issue there that needs to be addressed potentially medically as a, from, a, from a doctor, um, we've got to appreciate the fact that 
largely those markers are in our control and they probably reflect the patterns and the habits and the energy balance and the stress that our client's been under for the last several months. So realistically, at the start of prep, once we've run a priming phase with that client for however many weeks, they should be in a pretty good state of health. And if there's something wrong there, then, then that needs to be addressed. So from a thyroid perspective, it could be like, um, it could be stress related. It could be, uh, you know, the cofactors of the thyroid are low within the diet or nutritionally. So we're going to support those. And then we go back, usually speaking, within eight to 12 weeks and we'd remeasure and we'd look at where they're at. Now, if it's a, if it's a metabolic situation, then, you know, you're going to need a good couple of months to, to start addressing that, if not even longer, depending on the severity of the situation. If it is um, lipids, for example, and you want to see LDL and triglycerides regulate before you start prep, then that can probably be addressed much quicker. So you're looking at maybe four to six weeks of smart supplementation and nutritional uh, kind of programming, potentially some lifestyle stuff. So realistically, probably like eight to 12 weeks for most things. Now, you've also got to appreciate the fact, and it brings us on to our next point, some of the markers that come up on blood panels are not necessarily representative of genuine organ function. So for example, when we spoke about before we started recording about like the creatinine levels and the creatine kinase, all of those kind of muscle health markers or markers that are relative to hepatic strains like liver and kidney markers, they can be skewed on blood work and they can be pretty drastically skewed on blood work, but not necessarily reflect on current liver and kidney function overall. It's more so the status they're in when the blood work is drawn. So for those markers, they can be addressed very quickly. So you're talking a couple of weeks of, 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 uh, of pulling them back in terms of, you know, the fatigue that's being accumulated or a couple of weeks of pulling back from training, et cetera, they can be improved. But if you're looking at sex hormones, lipids, thyroid hormones, whatever it might be, you know, eight, 12 weeks would be a good general rule of thumb. And eight, 12 weeks in the grand scheme across a year, that could probably pretty drastically disturb your competitive plans. So that might mean that for that said client, you're either going to, you know, you're not going to compete in, in April, you're going to compete in September, or you potentially might take another year out to make sure that your body is in a prime state of health before you start dancing. Yeah. And you touched briefly on uh, creatinine levels there. So why might they be elevated in resistance trained individuals? So we're going to see a couple of, uh, couple of variables that will skew depending on the training status of the client. So resistance training generally has a profound effect on liver values, specifically raising the total count. So predominantly ALT, AST for somewhere in the region of 14, 14 to seven days. So between one and two weeks after strenuous muscular activity. So taking sets to failure, breaking down muscle tissue, we're going to see some pretty profound impacts on, on liver markers. So I can guarantee you that if I train legs yesterday and I run a blood test this morning, a lot of those liver markers are going to be skewed and potentially my EGFR is going to be down lower than it needed to because my creatinine is going to be much higher than it was. So specifically the muscle damage that's incurring during heavy resistance training and we know more muscle damage is occurring in when we're loading a tissue in the mid and lengthen ranges. When that damage is occurring, there's a, the release of enzymes into the bloodstream, which causes these blood markers to be elevated. So these, these liver enzymes are being released into the bloodstream. Now, what generally could be elevated, um, liver-wise, ALT, AST, VUN, urea, creatinine, creatine kinase, those probably the most common. Um, we've also got to appreciate the fact that EGFR, which stands for, that's the dog, sorry, which stands for um, estimated glomerular filtration rate. So just, let me just turn that off. You're going to see EGFR on most blood panels when it comes to kidney health. 
that EGFR is calculated through um, what the creatinine level on the blood work is, and it's also calculated through age, gender, and race. So if we took up, like, if you typed into Google now, EGFR calculator, for you, we'd basically take your age, your gender, your race, and then we take what your creatinine level was on the blood work. Now, relative to if you just trained, we've got to be in a situation where that could be drastically elevated because we've just been in a trained, trained state, so creatinine's super high, and that then lowers that total EGFR. So on the blood work, it could say, right, EGFR is in a, in, a, in a red flag state because it's low, but that's only relative to the trained status you've just been in. If we wanted to get a more accurate representation over overall kidney function, we could be then looking at the cystatin C test. So cystatin C is a low molecular weight protein enzyme which is produced by cells, and that would give us a more accurate representation as to kidney function, cystatin C being high above baseline will be a more accurate representation of kidney function, but the EGFR is a little bit skewed in terms of overall kidney function. Um, also interesting to note, high protein diet, classified at around above one gram per pound, will elevate protein turnover and increase urea, uh, causing that blood urea nitrogen levels to be elevated, which can again be, be kind of uh, interpreted as impaired kidney function as well. Yeah. And before we move on to the next point, Cal, you mentioned briefly that some sort of blood test results can be affected by whether you've trained recently. Would you usually advise that a client runs a deload or rests for a period of time before having blood work done? Yeah. So one of the easiest ways to do that is basically timing that after a deload. So say if you've got a client that's in a, in a training block and you can map out across the year a couple of times where you're running blood work, we could then put them in a position where it's like, right, we're gonna put you in a position where after this deload and this deload in those months, and deloading could be you know, taking complete time off, off training, so like say taking a week off, or putting them in a position where you are, you're actively trying to reduce the level of muscle damage which is being incurred. So, we're you know, loading tissue with less eccentric focus. We're not loading tissues as much in the, in the length and ranges and the length and extremes. We're potentially using more of a concentric tempo, so more time spent in that concentric range. Um, that could obviously improve the reliability of those markers. But generally speaking, for most people, I'd just say, right, let's take a week off here and let's measure your blood work after that week off. Yeah, that's cool. And so on to the next point. In terms of the menstrual cycle obviously we know that women's hormones will fluctuate over the course of the month what changes do we see in blood markers over the course of the menstrual cycle so the uh we'll, we'll kind of break this down into two phases so we can first you might get dog, dogs barking a minute sorry we get the uh the first um the first appreciation over where we are in terms of the menstrual cycle impact in blood work in general and then you can also break that down into how hormonal birth control or oral contraceptives are influencing blood work as well. So generally speaking, the menstrual cycle does have a, a relatively significant impact on blood work. Um, and we can decipher a couple of markers that it does have more of an influence over relative to the changes that are occurring in the ovarian cycle. So like vitamin D, um, estimated um, uh, C-reactive protein, so like... Uh, your inflammatory marker in the blood is going to is going to skew iron is going to skew lipids are going to skew generally in a female blood test if you went to like a gp for example they're going to want to run the test 
at some point between days two and five of the cycle. Um, so in that, in that follicular phase. Now, when it comes to blood work, the biggest consideration there is basically measuring your, your panel or when you're measuring blood work on a like week to like week basis. So say if I was measuring blood work in the, in week one or the end of the start of week two of the panel that we got on January, then I want to make sure that when we ran your blood work again in June, I'd want to run it at the same time of the, of the cycle. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like caution needs to be taken when we're interpreting data results at a traverse uh, phase within the cycle. So we, we don't want to be measuring, you know, January it was in week four and then in, in July we measured it in, in week two. Um, yeah, that makes complete sense. So it's consistency that matters sort of over everything else that you're, every time you're getting bloods done, it's at the same time of the month so that you can actually compare those results and you're not just seeing fluctuations in certain hormones due to the time of the month and as opposed to other factors 100 percent, so like if we uh if we take into consideration like the bigger the bigger picture there in terms of what markers we're specifically seeing skewed um iron would be would be one of the main ones so the considerations of blood loss during menstruation or blood loss, blood loss during menzies and lower iron levels in females so Typically, women lose about 60 milligrams of iron for the average menstrual period. Um, that can be as high as around 36 milligrams or above for women with excess, excessive menstruation, so potentially like female populations with, with endo. Um, so there's going to be some iron loss within the blood um, during that shedding period of the endometrial lining. Um, and that also has an impact on the likes of hemoglobin, ferritin, transfer saturation um, due to the, the, the increase in, in, in blood loss during, the, during the, uh, the menzies phase of the cycle. So relative to, say, the follicular phase, we're going to potentially see increases in um, iron loss in that follicular phase. Um, we're going to see relative uh, influences in, in lipid profile as well. So research has shown that we're going to see lipids fluctuate across the menstrual cycle in response generally to estrogen or more specifically estradiol. So there was a study done by Draper et al showing significant reductions in total cholesterol, HDL, which will be classified as high density lipoprotein and triglyceride concentrations in the luteal phase relative to the follicular. Um, in addition, women who are undergoing estradiol treatment, but not progesterone, so like estradiol dominant birth control, for example, saw a 30% reduction in triglycerides during the luteal phase. So again, with the uh, with the lipids, we're looking at a more of an importance over the uh, the light week to light week measurement of uh, blood analysis. Same thing goes for vitamin D. Vitamin D has consistently been shown to be higher uh, during a women's period than others other phases of the cycle. So vitamin D higher in the menstrual uh, menses phase of the cycle, and uh, C-reactive protein. So C-reactive protein is uh, is CRP on a on a blood panel. And there's a study I pulled up earlier. So out of a prospective cohort among 259 healthy menstruating females between the ages 18 and 44, none of them taking contraceptives, showed levels of uh, C-reactive protein high, uh, being varied significantly across the menstrual cycle. So highest during menstruation. If we look at like um, general PMS symptoms or general discomfort during that shedding of the endometrial lining, it probably does make sense that we're gonna see high CRP during menstruation. And it decreased steadily during the follicular phase, reaching its lowest point at the expected day of ovulation around day 14. 
and then increase back to baseline in that luteal phase. So symptoms of PMS observed in that late luteal phase were also associated with uh, elevated CRP. So C-reactive protein, if we're measuring at week four of the cycle or week one of the cycle, we're probably going to see elevated levels of what we'd refer to as that systemic inflammatory marker. Cool. So they're just things to take into account for, for the listeners when they are getting their blood test results. Like it's really important to take into account the phase of the menstrual cycle you're in and then take certain results with a pinch of salt based on how they sort of could be affected. And so we know that hormonal birth control is very common these days. Is it still worth looking into certain hormone levels or not? And why? So for, for females using birth control? Yeah. So absolutely. So like we're going to have a, a prerequisite to having a certain dominance of a, a variant hormone in, um, in female populations using birth control. So like any other medication, hormonal contraceptives, whether that's a patch, a pill, an IUD, an implant, an injection, interfere with normal function of the human body. And the birth control is working via negative feedback inhibition so that birth control is basically working by negative feedback now when you're taking an exogenous hormone the brain thinks endogenous levels are normal so it ceases the production bar inhibiting fsh and lh obviously lh is there to prevent estrogen production within the ovaries and fsh presents prevents follicle uh, development so ovulation doesn't occur now we know we've got certain types of birth control we know we've got Combined birth control, which is a little bit of estrogen, a little bit of uh, progesterone, typically typically developed into triphasic or monophasic apl- application. And we know we've got progesterone-only birth control as well. Now, we could do you know birth control for a whole podcast, but generally speaking, we're going to see a couple of things being influenced by birth control usage, which you will see on blood panels. So the first one would be a lower level of DHEA. Um, so lower levels of DHEA found within all oral contraceptive users relative to non oral contraceptive users. So DHEA is a molecule that's synthesized in sex hormones, estradiol and testosterone. So if we looked at the pathology of sex hormones, DHEA is going to be towards the, towards the top. You know, that, that's a, an essential molecule for energy, for muscle, for bone health, for sexual function in both males and females. And the reduction in DHEA by oral contraceptives is potentially due to the suppression of androgens made by the adrenal glands combined with higher cortisol production. Higher cortisol is another uh, factor of birth control usage within within uh, within um, blood work. So DHEA levels begin to drop soon after beginning the contraception. Depending on the duration of the oral contraception, it can take quite some time to increase once oral contraception has been discontinued, so once it's been removed. DHEA levels naturally decline after about the mid-20s for a female. So we're going we're to see low DHEA. DHEA on a blood panel would be within those sex hormones. So if we're looking like um, estrogen, progesterone, bioavailable androgens, we're gonna have DHEA around the bottom of that blood panel. We can also see quite a big uh, factor here, and this is like general um, female clients using using, uh, birth control. And we can also talk about this and branch into potentially PCOS populations and why they'd wanna use those, uh, those forms of birth control when they got PCOS and obviously elevated bioavailable androgens, we're going to see an increase in elevated SHBG. Now, SHBG stands for sex hormone binding globulin, and that can be elevated up to 400% within oral contraceptive users, so within birth control users. SHBG binds to testosterone and reduces its bioavailability. So 
estrogen, like in oral contraceptions, result in a dose-related increase in SHBG production by the liver. Obviously, FHBG is something that's produced by the liver. The likes of like PCOS-type situations, they're going to use this level of birth control because it's going to increase SHBG. And obviously, PCOS populations have a lowered level of SHB and an increased level of bioavailable androgens. So studies show that peak SHBG levels uh, can be reached in as little as three weeks after beginning oral contraception and subsequently can fall just as quickly after stopping use. Since increases in SHB are dose-dependent, forms of lower doses of estrogens like IUDs result in lower increases in SHBG. Conversely, forms with higher doses like the patch or ring result in larger increases. Combined oral birth control pills fall somewhere in the middle. So we're going to see this increase in, in SHBG. Um, low testosterone is another, uh, is another byproduct. So again, if we look at low DHEA and elevated SHBG, we're probably going to get lower bioavailable androgens as well. So testosterone production is also suppressed with oral contraception use, typically by up to 50%. Now, testosterone is something that's typically misunderstood within females, but it's something that is of critical importance to female health as well. It's just less of a dominant hormone relative to estrogen and progesterone. So researchers propose this decrease in, in, the, in testosterone is due to the suppression of testosterone created in the ovaries and suppression of testosterone created in the adrenal glands as a result of that increased SHBG. Um, it's important to note, like we said, testosterone is not only for men as a primary hormone, but women also require testosterone for energy, muscle health, bone health, and, and, and libido as well. So lower testosterone, lower DHEA, again, are typical. Elevated levels of cortisol, um, cortisol being elevated due to changes with the adrenal glands, because the adrenal glands will um, suppress the production of androgens whilst on oral contraceptive. More cortisol may be made to siphon off the, the products that would go otherwise go towards making those androgens like testosterone. Um, elevated levels of uh, C-reactive proteins, like we said before, within the non-oral birth control populations. Low-grade inflammation as a result of the oral contraception will be used to predispose individuals with higher inflammatory status in response to physical activity. So we're typically seeing elevated levels of uh, C-reactive protein with oral contraceptive use. And then the last one um, will be, well, there's two actually, low, fo low folate. Uh, so again, folate will be another marker on most panels. Um, a large meta-analysis, I can't remember the, guy, the guy's name, but a large meta-analysis found that oral contraceptive users had significantly low, lower blood folate levels relative to non-oral contraceptive users. The exact mechanism that impacts folate metabolism is not known. However, the type of oral contraceptive used during the oral contraceptive usage, baseline folate level and nutritional status may exacerbate the reduction of blood levels. As we know, folate is a critical nutrient during the first month of pregnancy, so a lot of the um, pregnancy like supplements that you can buy when you go and you're trying to conceive in the first place have high folate because it's a critical critical nutrient for conception um, they're going to be generally speaking higher amounts of blood folate um, sorry lower amounts of blood folate in the in the females reproductive years so it's why it's commonly seen within those supplements um, the last two would be I think Cooper's trying to sleep now the last two would be uh, low B12 so uh, serum B12 concentrations lower um, and B12 absorption, cycling, uh, recycling the storage is lower, and high ferritin as well. So the highest levels of ferritin may be due to several factors, including reduced menstrual bleeding frequency, 
um, and the higher inflammatory markers like the C-reactive protein. So from a contraceptive standpoint, we're going to see as a, as, a, as a kind of highlight, low DHEA, low testosterone, increased SHBG. Again, you know, the relative uh, increase can be context dependent. Elevated cortisol relative to the adrenals, elevated C-reactive protein, lower folate, lower B12 and high ferritin as well. And Callum, if we do see these effects as a result of using birth control, such as um, our B2, B12 levels, should an individual consider supplementation to try and sort of help their situation with that? Yeah, so the only thing with uh, B12, and it is, it's not necessarily very known, but we might have a situation where B12 absorption in general will be poor, but in that context, if we know B12 is low, then we probably want to look at an exogenous means of supplementing B12 to try and improve that situation for sure. Yeah, that's cool. And so when an individual is getting their bloods done, is there any benefit to them having an IV test as opposed to doing it by a finger prick? Um, so finger prick would be uh, capillary, uh, phlebotomy, blood sample would be venous. Um, so there was a study that I found uh, done by the University of the West of England um, where they basically measured uh, differences in finger to, to finger prick to blood. Um, historically blood analysis has been done via a vein but due to convenience purposes like Medichex not having to send out a nurse to draw your blood and financial limitations as well as the cost it would cost to pay someone to draw your blood as well. Obviously sending someone with finger prick sample just like if you were to you know, they've used this for years with diabetic uh, patients, you know, with lancets testing their blood glucose. It's possible. Um, finger prick testing has become more common because it's cheaper and it's easier. Each method, each different method of blood extraction is unlikely that the results will be identical, um, just as if you sent the same venue sample to be analyzed at two different labs. The, the, the results are probably going to come out slightly different. But this research data by the University of West of England um, found there to be very little differences between the two. But the most important factor there was the fact that you, you want to basically be in a position where if you're going to use a fingerprint sample, we're not really going to want to measure a fingerprint sample comparatively to a, to, a, to a phlebotomy sample, so one through a vein relative to the end of the finger. So if we're going to be comparing blood work, we want to say, right, well, this was a phlebotomy blood sample relative to a phlebotomy blood sample, or this was a fingerprint blood test relative to a fingerprint blood test. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's consistency of the method of taking the, the measurement exactly. that matters the most as opposed to what the measurement actually is. The, yeah, the, 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 the big kind of um, issue I have with the fingerprint test, and you'll see like a lot of the, for example, Medichex is probably the biggest one in the UK, a lot of the more in-depth blood panels, they won't allow for fingerprint samples. They'll want uh, phlebotomy blood samples because of the blood volume needed. You're going to have a limitation in terms of how many markers that you're going to get on one of those fingerprint samples, generally for most places. But you're also, just from, from an anecdotal experience, I don't know how many of the listeners would have, would have had this as well, but from personal experience with allowing clients to run fingerprint samples, the amount of times those samples fail is insanely high. Like I've had other clients run fingerprint tests before where it will have failed three or four times in a row. Now it's pretty inconvenient doing it in the first place because it takes ages sometimes. And the issue we have is there, you know, we could have um, 
we could have had the, the sample clot on transport to the lab, or most commonly, the most common thing is, you can't get enough actual blood volume in the sample tube in the first place. Like the tubes are pretty big, and to actually have that come out your finger, it's gonna take a while. Some people that could get poor blood flow in, blood, uh, blood flow in that extremity of a, a finger are gonna struggle. So just as a general rule of thumb to save yourself hassle, I would say like, just do it via a phlebotomist. If you're desperate, then do it via a fingerprint sample. But just to save yourself some effort, I probably would just say just do it via a vein. I've also had clients that have done fingerprint samples and passed out at home doing them. Um, they've, they've actually fainted whilst doing them and like text me like, oh, I've just woken up. I've woken up on my dining room floor after fainting from doing my blood tests. I was like, Jesus Christ. Um, so yeah, probably be in, the, be in the presence of someone else when you do it and uh, go, for a, go for a vein sample if you can. I've always gone for intravenous personally, just because I don't like the thought of taking my own blood. And yeah. I've had an IV one done before and she was literally there for ages getting so much blood out. And I just thought I'm not doing that myself. So I yeah, agree yeah. with that. <laughs> and so, I've done, I've done, a couple yeah. of times I've done, the, uh, I've done the intravenous one myself. And uh, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty sketchy as well. Yeah, I don't think I would be able to do that to myself. It's just the thought of like, getting it yourself i'd just rather someone else do it and not be not have to look at it yeah exactly exactly and so post show we know that obviously the priority throughout our prep is not health it is looking the best we possibly can do on stage and so post show an individual is not going to be in an optimal position from a health perspective so how long would you usually wait until getting bloods done in a post show scenario yeah, so like metabolically, hormonally, stress-wise, you, you, even if, the, even if the, the contest prep was like perfectly executed. So for example, your prep last year, even though we had you know, tapered your output before that last show, even though we'd increased your food before that last show and lowered stress, you know, by the end of that prep, you were still so lean that it's not going to be great either way. So one thing I would say is from a blood analysis perspective, I wouldn't shy away from getting an appreciation of where your blood metrics are and those markers are, even at times where you know stress is the highest. Because I want to get an appreciation of like, right, at the, at the lowest low of where we are right now, how resilient are we to maintaining the, the status of these markers? So I don't always want to get an appreciation of where a client's blood work is when it's perfect. Because that's kind of given us a little bit of a false representation if they're spending the last, you know, if they're spending 30 weeks of the year in prep, or in a darting phase or whatever, in a higher stress state, then measuring it in the, in the other 20, 20 odd is, is not that much of an accurate representation as to where they are most of the time. So I would get an example of, you know, blood work at its, at its worst point and see where it is as a comparative marker. And then post-show, realistically, for us to kind of get you back into a good place, you're looking at eight to 12 weeks, about three months of bringing food back up, lowering stress, getting the nervous system back into a better place, you know, building on positive habits after a show as well, because we've got to appreciate the fact that there, there are not only physical turmoil there post-show, sometimes there's also psychological battles that we've got to face as well with, you know, allowing body fat levels to increase, getting comfortable with eating more food, getting sleep back in check. And there are multiple variables that we're going to have to address. So generally speaking, back out of the tail end of a prep, eight to 12 weeks to get them back into a really good place but don't shy away from, you know, actually running some blood work towards the back end of that prep, just from a data collection perspective to see, you know, if we are at the lowest of lowest right now, 
where's that actually putting us out at? And, you know, is this something that we actually need to be considerate of next time around? Yeah, that makes complete sense. And so we've spoken quite a lot about uh, blood testing and testing for other health markers. What, sorry, we've talked a lot about testing blood markers. What other health markers or measurements might you consider taking prior to starting a contest prep with an athlete? Um, so obviously blood work is a, blood work's a pretty invasive thing to do and it's inconvenient. We're not going to do blood work on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. We're going to do it maybe every quarter, for example, for, mo- for most people even, maybe even more sporadically. As a day-to-day thing, the things that are easiest to track, they're going to have a bigger, you know, a, a bigger reflection on day-to-day health metrics and easy things to do that are convenient. Measuring resting heart rate and HRV, so heart rate variability and resting heart rate. So from an autonomics perspective, that will give you a pretty damn good representation as to where the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system is. Um, and that can be done via, you know, an oil ring, a whoop strap, an eye watch, uh, a Polar H10 and an Elite HRV app. Most of the time, most of the, the clients that I work with will have some form of uh, will have some form of gadget that they can measure it really easily. Um, blood pressure will be another fantastic marker to, to track and regulate over the course of a period of time. Uh, so blood pressure upon wake, you know, 15 to 20 minutes after waking, after you've hydrated, before food, before any stimulants. Um, having certain levels of uh, Objective appreciation of the sleep quality can also be really useful. So like tracking sleep architecture, tracking sleep quality and, you know, potentially a sleep efficiency rating or a sleep score, for example, can be really useful. But also from a sleep perspective, we don't want to get too drawn into being like over analytical because there can be a point of like paralysis by analysis there where, you know, if I'm getting a, a client so fixated on improving their sleep quality by 5% that, the obsession over that itself actually ruins their sleep in the first place because they can't stop thinking about it. So that you've got to take with a bit of a pinch of salt. Uh, and again, the same goes for like blood glucose analysis. Now, blood glucose obviously is a comparative marker. It's great for actually looking at blood glucose management and looking at relative insulin sensitivity, but also that can have implications on, on uh, stress management and what, what the status of the autonomic nervous system is because liver will, the liver will dump glucose into the blood in a high stress situation in that fight or flight state in that sympathetic trigger. So blood glucose can also be a really good indication of stress. But again, you know, pricking your finger with a lancet and taking your blood glucose is also really inconvenient and really invasive. So as a general rule of thumb for clients, like what are the easiest ones to do that will give us the most data and that will be blood pressure, resting heart rate, and and HRV day-to-day or week-to-week. Yeah, that's really helpful for people. And we know that obviously your lifestyle and your habits on a daily basis will have a huge impact on overall health and well-being. So what would you say are your top five habits that you would recommend to an individual to help optimize their health? Um, So like... Things that are easily in your control. Um, so looking at look, looking past like nutrition and looking past you know micronutrient density within the diet and getting enough essential fatty acids in and you know eating sufficient calories to, to match your energy requirements for most of the year. There'll be periods of time where obviously you're in a deficit, but for most of the year we want to be eating eating in a in a position where we're matching at least matching our energy requirements. Like day to day from a habitual perspective, setting a consistent morning and evening routine would be at the top of my list in terms of programming a client and getting them into a maximally efficient position. So like productivity, 
positive habits to instill, starting the day on the right note, having a solid morning routine. And that could literally be like, right, you know, they have some form of schedule that they follow in the morning where they get up at the exact same time every single day and they're really regimented with that. They might go on a walk or they might do some journaling or they might start work really early to be productive for the rest of the day. Whatever your little thing is, just make it consistent every single day. And then the same with the evening routine, like bookmark your day with structure and you'll find that your day starts to flow far more efficiently. So like, right, this is the time that I turn my computer off. This is the time that I stop looking at Instagram. This is the time where I try and reduce my screen exposure. This is the time where I try and chill out. You know, I'm having my last meal at this point, so it's not too close towards bedtime because then that might have an impairment on sleep quality. Pre-bed sleep hygiene is critical for, for success there. So morning and evening routine will be big on the list. Um, daylight exposure, so increasing your, your daylight exposure. Obviously, in the UK, the, the lux exposure we get isn't great because it probably rains for 99% of the time, but generally, to increase your daylight exposure, like I've got a, one of those... Um, uh, sad lamps on my uh, on my desk here because I spend most of the time indoors. Um, so like I have one of these uh, SAD lamps, which is a seasonal affective disorder lamp, which basically gives out and emits a certain amount of lux. It's about ten thousand lux for the highest setting. So that is like an artificial form of of light exposure that I want across the day. And then I'll try and take the dog out maybe once or twice, or go and you know answer a phone call or or, or send a couple of WhatsApps if like sitting in the garden just to try and get outdoors a little bit more. So daylight exposure would be big on the list, especially for PTs who are either working in the gym that don't leave or an online coach who just sits in, at their desk all day and doesn't go outdoors, big on the list. Um, hydration, so optimal hydration, fluid intake, and also consider the fact that from a hydration standpoint, it's not just looking at fluid intake, we're looking at cellular hydration. So the, the, the kind of important electrolytes come into play there, so like sodium, potassium, magnesium, making sure all those are in balance and making sure we're getting a sufficient amount of each. Um, more often than not, like as your fluid demands increase, the electrolyte demands increase as well. So it's all going to well telling a client to go from two liters of water to five liters of water a day. But we've got to appreciate the fact that, right, if we've increased by three liters and we've bumped their water up by 60% a day, we've got to allow that to reflect within the electrolytes they're taking on board as well. Otherwise, they'll technically still be dehydrated. So if we're going to increase fluid drastically, we're going to have to increase these nutrients alongside that to actually do something with the fluid we're consuming because cellular hydration will rely on that electrolyte balance as well, okay? More fluid and less electrolytes just results in more of an imbalance, yeah? So like that, that would be the same as if we said, right, from a partitioning perspective, if we're, in a, if we're trying to load a client into a show and we're putting food in, as those nutrients go in, fluid intake and electrolyte demands increase alongside that. And as food starts to decrease, that will reflect in the drop as well. So making sure we're getting fluid in, but also making sure we're managing electrolytes is, is, is key. So shameless plug, but if you get an electrolyte blend powder, so like Dr. Dean's supplement needs one, use Curb Master Mentors, um, <laughs> um, something like that that's like pre-made that you just have to drop a scoop in. It tastes, it tastes nice. It's like putting squash in your water. And if I've got like a 1.5 liter bottle here, I'll just put a little bit of electrolytes in and I might drink that three times a day. And that's pretty much sorted from the standpoint of managing the balance. You don't have to like track it gram to gram, just have an appreciation. Um, and then the one thing that I think for me, and I think you'll say the same thing here, as a coach who predominantly works, if not exclusively online, is like being consistent year round with like a certain level of neat and like not turning in someone that's just completely sedentary. Because yeah. if I didn't make an active, you know, an active choice to try and move, I literally would do zero steps. My steps would be walking downstairs after I woke up and sitting here all day. So 
you know, I don't actually track my steps at the moment, but I know, right, I want to try and get out maybe twice a day to go for a 15-minute walk, whatever it might be. So we, we, we kind of tick the box in terms of daylight exposure, but we're just getting the body moving and outside of that work environment, I think is really important. So one of the things that I'll program early on for clients is like having certain times of the day where they have those little activity breaks, work breaks, or just movement breaks that just get the body moving. It's great for digestion. It's great for stress management. We don't want to be in a position where we're ever that kind of sedentary indoors hermit person because it's just not going to have a good impact on the nervous system. Yeah, I think they're great tips. And in terms of supplementation, obviously it's something that is going to be very individual, but on a general level, are there any supplements that individuals might consider which are commonly quite beneficial from an overall health perspective? Um, so I guess the bigger ones for me would be like, right, what are we potentially going to be def- not deficient in, but what, are we want to, what, what do we want to supplement nutritionally on top of an already established diet so like how many clients are taking on board a sufficient amount of epa dha in their diet so like omega-3 for example probably not sufficient daily they're not eating fatty fish they're not eating enough polyunsaturated fat so omega-3 epa dha would be big on the list um a multivitamin or a greens powder again easy just topping up that nutritional status for the day uh probably magnesium and zinc having obviously multiple functions in the body and being essential minerals and um, a vitamin D and K2, so like vitamin, vitamin D drops. And, and generally, like most people in the UK, unless there's some kind of genetic predisposition there, most people will be deficient or nearly deficient in vitamin D if they're not using vitamin D themselves because we don't get a lot of light exposure. If we lived in, in Marbella year-round, then we'd be absolutely fine. But we, we don't. So um, supplementing with that, say three to three to 5,000 IUs per day would be, would be pretty useful. And like these things, although it's, it seems even absurd talking about it, like with the situation with the pandemic and the immune system, these things are obviously anchors for immune function as well that have more, even more of a, an importance now being essential nutrients because we know, right, if we saturate those, then we're probably going to be much more resilient and not getting ill as well. So they'd be even higher on the on the pecking order the priority list yeah that's cool i think they're really good recommendations and so thank you for joining us today cal it's been an excellent podcast and i'm sure that a lot of people are going to benefit from the information in this podcast where can people find you on social media and how can people sign up for the muscle mentors site if they're interested as well so if you were all of us are on Instagram just with our first names. If you just type in the Muscle Mentors, um, obviously into Instagram, everyone's going to come up. And from the website's perspective, again, just if you just type into Google the Muscle Mentors or type into your your search engine www.themusclementors.com, uh, it's gonna it's gonna come up with the education portal. So we run it. He's gonna start barking again. We run a um, educa- education subscription website for for coaches and fitness enthusiasts in general, which basically take you through a. Uh, it's almost like a university level course where there's lectures and there's assessments, etc. We're currently in the process of getting an official accreditation as well. So there'll be a certification once you've done all of the the seminars and the lectures, and that should happen sometime this year. So. Um, yeah, it's kind of been like a resource that collectively all of us as coaches that, you know, I think we, we've got like upwards of like 50 years of experience with everyone combined because James is like 100 years old. Um, we've uh, we've kind of collectively brought our minds together and created something that we wish we had when we first started as coaches. And 
you know, the, the pool of knowledge that people need. Like when you go out there and you start going on courses, et cetera, like there's potentially like hundreds of hours worth of learning there. But from a coaching perspective, you know, in my, in my eyes, we want to be getting the most applicable stuff for what we actually need to know to be great coaches. And that's therefore condensing it into stuff that if you've only got two hours to study a week, or if you've got, you know, half an hour of study a day, we can't go and spend a hundred hours trying to break this complex topic down into what we need to learn and what we don't. So the whole point of the portal there is to give you it in interpretable, absorbable bite-sized portions and just allow you to program in some study across the week where you're getting maximum out of that in the first place. Cool. Thank you so much for your time, Carl. And thank you to anyone who's taken the time to listen. If you do enjoy the content on the Female Fitness Podcast, please take the time to like and subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate it massively. And I will see you guys next week.